I love the expression, follow your heart. In the hands of an author or screenwriter, it's a signpost, a tension point, where the reader or viewer hopes the protagonist will follow their heart to chase their dreams, their treasure, or their love interest. But there's a big difference between fiction and the realities of life. Do most people follow their heart, or do they instead chase security or predictability or reliability, or even validation from their parents? Or are they, can they be, one and the same? How many people pursue a degree or career that they or others feel is a safe bet? Or choose a perfectly paved path, but one over time they find themselves meandering versus skipping along? How many look back and wonder how their life might have been if they had chosen the road less traveled? One marked by risk, but with the potential for intellectual or emotional reward. How many learn to follow the heart only after they learn to listen to it? My guest today follows his heart. We are beings of divine light. We are perfectly imperfect. Like with all of our imperfections, we are perfect. He's a Renaissance man. He's a musician, internationally acclaimed yoga teacher, and the creator of Ashaya Yoga. He's written his memoir, a memoir where he followed his heart, starting on a path across the street from the university where he was studying. His journey might seem to many to be unconventional, including living like a monk for over a decade and overcoming two circumstances of betrayal by people he believed in. But he re-emerged as someone whose learnings are universal and I think needed at a time when our world seems so upside down. I encourage you to open your mind and heart to what he has to offer. This is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Todd Noran, welcome to Chatter That Matters. Hey, Tony. So, Todd, I use the word renaissance. That's a name that I don't use lightly, but someone that really has a sense of what's going on and is open to so many things. And I guess, if, what's the best way to describe it? The, the path that I'm on is living a householder life, an ordinary life, but as a yogi. So, I bring an extraordinary awareness to an ordinary life. That makes the ordinary extraordinary. How much of that is like what we'll also learn about, which we could have done in a complete show on because you're incredibly talented, is you've said in numerous articles that what led you to yoga was music. And what I first want to understand is what led you to music? I think I heard my dad practicing the trumpet when I was in utero. So he uh, was in the Michigan, University of Michigan marching band. He was into music. And when he started his family... Our family, he switched to insurance. So I think he had always an unfulfilled dream to be a musician. Um, so he started a, a band, just a local, like he had his own jazz orchestra and would played for weddings and different functions and things. And he practiced every day. So I kind of grew up around music. Also, my uh, grandmother, uh, his mother was a concert pianist. So there was some music, you know, in the family. We got a piano when I was around seven. I started taking lessons at eight. They wouldn't let me <laughs> take lessons earlier. My sister's three years older. And so she got to start. She had three years on me. And when she started, I wanted to start, but I was only like, I don't know, five years old or something. And I had to wait. I was so pissed. So when I finally started at age eight, I surpassed her in one year and then she got so jealous. I just really fell in love with music. It, I think everybody comes in with special desires, interests and gifts, we could say. And I think music was one of mine. At age 11, you start your own band. I started a band at around 14. We spent three days coming up with the name. We got to play one song, House of the Rising Sun. And then we just went on and went off to play softball or something because <laughs> it just, we knew we weren't going to be the next Beatles. I mean, you were at it though. You were at age 11. You decided that this was, yeah. you know, was it because you love playing in front of people or was it a chance to make some money or just just to get you know validation from your uh, from your family that you were that music was also in your blood, all of the above, and it's so funny. But we played that same song, "House of the Rising Sun." You know, I just I loved it, and I loved playing with others. I loved playing like putting a group together to make a bigger sound. And our first gig was at a dental uh, auxiliary for uh, the hygienist from uh, my neighbor hired us, and uh, we played "Lonely Days, Lonely Nights" by the Bee Gees. 
Jesus Christ Superstar, which was like the big hit during that time. And uh, we all got five bucks. I thought I was the richest person on the planet. Talk to me. You talked about it within a year. I passed my sister. And then there's another person that kind of comes into that competition wheelhouse named Karen. Like her ability to play the ivory kind of drove you a little crazy. It did. Okay. So my piano teacher uh, put me into competitions, like against my will. She just loved these competitions and I hated them because I always choked up. I was so nervous. Karen Kleinheisen, I'll never forget her name. Uh, she just always won. She came from a musical family. Uh, her mom was a, a piano teacher and her sisters all played. You know, I mean, she was top notch. She would win. And I had turned to my piano teacher and said, who's that girl? She said, oh, that's Karen Kleinheisen. So that was my goal to try to beat her. She beat me for, I don't know, six or seven years, like all in a row. You know, something shifted for me in high school. I'm not exactly sure what it was, but it may have been sort of like my fury being beaten by Karen is I decided I just got determined. I said, I'm going to beat her. I don't care what it takes. I switched piano teachers to study with a college uh, professor. That changed everything. Uh, she was so critical of me, but she also was super loving. So I was able to receive it. She changed every single note. You know, there was like a Mozart sonata that I was playing and she had a mark over every single note in that piece. You know, like she, she knew what, what she was, uh, listening for and she opened me to a whole new way of playing. Then I started practicing and it was four to six hours every day, you know, in and around the school schedule. Which separates you from many because a lot of people would probably crumble under that, that, you know, you go to a new teacher, you, you want to get better. And she basically wants to sort of strip it back down to almost the base by marking every note. And a lot of people would be, I'm so frustrated. And this is, you know, I don't feel like I'm swimming to the desired end game of beating Karen now. I think I'm back learning how to tread water. What's your advice? Because some people really respond to that where a lot of other people run from it. I, I think it really boils down to intention. There's, you know, in the Tantra philosophy that I teach, there's three motivating questions. One is, what is your heart most deeply desire? What value is that to you? And what are you prepared to do about it? My heart's deepest desire at that time was to beat Karen Kleinheisen, you know, for better or worse. It wasn't a great motivation. I just got focused on that. You know, I was able to set aside other things. It had meaning for me. And it was interesting when I read your memoir and this fantastic book, and I'll make sure there's the links to it in the show notes. But, you know, you went off to two universities. The first one, you sort of got yourself in a world of studying music and you realized there was so much talent. I think you almost shifted from competition where you stood on, you know, the ranking to realizing that what was in your heart wasn't so much competing for this type of world, but actually discovering the kind of jazz that your dad played. You know, people always sort of establish music's music, but that was a big departure going from Mozart to that whole different world. So how did that come about? A lot of jazz musicians started with classical. You know, I just, I loved classical music. That's what I kind of grew up on in high school. Simultaneously, I was really into jazz. I was listening to Charlie Parker, Dizzy Gillespie. I mean, like very hardcore jazz, not like contemporary jazz, but like the older stuff. So I had both things going. And because I did so well in studying and preparing to beat Karen Kleinheisen, which I finally did in my junior year of, of high school, that it just motivated me. It's, I, I want to see how far I can go in this uh, classical piano thing. Even while I was at the first university, which is University of Michigan, which has an excellent music school, I was still taking jazz lessons outside of class time. And I was in this avant-garde jazz band. It was pretty out there, but really great. The guys were great. When I started kind of flunking out of the classical music program, I just lost my motivation. It was no longer fun. And it's like playing music that was 100, 200, 300 years old, someone else's idea. Yes, you can reinterpret it. You know, there's always creativity in music, no matter whether you're playing your own stuff or someone else's. But I really, really loved the self-expression of the music that I heard inside my heart. And that's what gave me sort of that spark, that juice to pursue that. And I was 
you know, fairly good at, at that too. So I thought, well, I have something here. Wound up going uh, to University of Miami. They had a great jazz school at that time. Um, they still do actually. So we're going to leave the music for a, a bit, although it does become a defining part of who you are throughout your life. You know, talking about following your heart, you're at that university and across the street, there's something you've never tried before, which is yoga. And the way you describe it is physical pain, intellectually confusing, but your heart just explodes. You finally feel you're at a place. And like for someone that's playing in front of audiences and avant-garde jazz and music and everything else, I was surprised it had such an impact on you. Yeah, it's crazy. Well, I have to take you back to the year that I was trying to decide whether or not to, sh to drop out of classical and, you know, transfer schools. Uh, I went back, I lived in the Midwest. I went back home and a friend who was a little bit older than me, four years older than me, had always been inspiration for me. He had a rock band and visited the grade schools when I was in grade school and he played Beatles songs and he looked like John Lennon. I mean, he looked like one of the Beatles. He was like my idol. He was home also. He went off to dance school and I went to music school. So we had some things in common. We got together. He was radiant. I could not stop looking at this guy because so much light was pouring off of him. And I finally said, hey, what are you doing? He said, I do yoga. I said, what do you mean? What is that? You know, so he explained it. And then he said that he was living at this yoga retreat center up in Pennsylvania. And anytime, just stop by. So he planted a seed and it was the image and not the image. But I had a feeling of energy coming off his 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 being, you know. It impacted me somehow. So when I found out that there was a yoga studio across the street from the university, uh, it was a pretty easy flow to just say, oh, well, let me try. Let me see what this is about. <laughs> it was torture. You know, I'd never stretched before. I was athletic and also very, very stiff. So a whole class of torture. And then at the end, you know, they always lay you down in what they call the corpse pose, Shavasana position. It was the first time I had ever done that. And the scene was set just right. You know, it was early evening. They turned the lights low. They put on this incredibly sweet smelling incense. They had on this music that I will never forget. Paul Horn inside the Taj Mahal. Now, this is a series of solo flute with all the overtones in this huge Indian cathedral. So what are overtones? That's what makes up all the jazz harmonies. So I'm lying there hearing the overtones being completely filled with this gorgeous music and I'm identifying all the different overtones. And then suddenly the dam breaks and tears started streaming out of my eyes. I'm like, what is going on? Then I'm lying on my back. Tears are coming out. I have no idea why that's happening because I wasn't really sad. I was actually kind of ecstatic. And then the tears formed little pools of water in my ears that I couldn't hear. Then I started laughing because I couldn't hear. Then I was crying. Then I was laughing. I didn't know what hit me. Later, upon some reflection, it was, I think that was the very first time in my life I let go. You know, I, I was no longer achieving, not trying to beat anybody. There wasn't any competition. It was just me in this vast, open, very pleasurable space. And it's like, I came home to my heart. That's, that's what I felt. Now the story takes another twist when you go to a 10 day yoga retreat and end up staying there for 13 years. Mm -hmm. Tell me how you kind of stumbled in for 10 days and, and it was probably the most important thing that's ever happened to you. Yeah. It changed the direction of my life. I was spending summers at a jazz uh, program at Eastman School of Music. So that's up in Rochester, New York. So I drive from Miami to Rochester. And then on the way back, I go kind of right through Pennsylvania. I called my friend who he said he was living at this yoga place. I said, Hey, I'm on my way going back to Miami. I had a fellowship, a free ride doing a master's degree program in music. It uh, doesn't start for 13 days. I have a few days. Let me stop by. So he said, sure. I was only planning to stay there for three days, but I was just swept away by the grace and beauty of what was going on there. And he talked me into taking a 10 day course, which would still give me a couple of days to drive back 
to Miami and I would still be able to make it. So I said, well, I can just bear, you know, I, I can make it. So I decided to, to dive in. I call it in my book, I call it a kind of like a spiritual awakening, but it was a spiritual emergency. It blew my mind. It cracked my heart wide open. We did so much inner reflection. And so I cried every day, like bawled my eyes out because of the insight of the history and the various traumas and challenges and wounds that, that, you know, we all struggle with growing up, but that it all was like this kaleidoscope of undigested experiences that came forward for me to look at and reframe into a spiritual context. And the person who was leading that held me in his arms every day. Like he did not teach me. He did not do it. He just was there for me in a presence. Oh, well, he later became a really close friend, a mentor. He's an amazing teacher in his own right. And he just recently passed away. He's, he's about 13 years older than I am. He's been sick for a while. So and a lot of people that sort of go through that experience often rely on natural drugs and herbs, psychedelics, mushrooms. They've gone to sort of indigenous. Uh, tribes, sweat logs and stuff. Was any of that involved or was it just you opening yourself up to this journey? It was partly the curriculum that was being delivered. I don't know if you know Jean Houston. She's a, you know, evolutionary transformational teacher. Um, she, I think had just published her first book, which was The Possible Human. We use a lot of the teachings from that book as kind of like our guide. And it took us through these various experiences designed to bring out difficult experiences to be able to integrate them and have and, and let go of them basically and to kind of take the lesson and the gift from that experience. So all that was combined with yoga, with a diet that was, I think, strict vegetarian food, which I wasn't used to. So I was, my body was going through a transformation. I felt lighter. I felt really, really good. And then what happened was is the guru, which I didn't even know what a guru was, had gotten back from travels and he started teaching the whole group. Like the last five days was focused on the guru. He would come in every morning and evening. He was opening people's hearts, you know, by the power of his presence, you know? So I would say instead of mushrooms uh, or drugs or anything else, there was a sort of a spiritual energy with an intent to purify and cleanse. And this turns out to be an aspect of the yogic path. And she never returned back to school. I mean, you decide to join this ashram. I can imagine the conversations with your friends and family. They're like, you're been studying music your entire life. Your dad's going, maybe he's going to live vicariously through you because he had to sell insurance instead of do what he did. And all of a sudden you're coming back and saying, you know, sometimes people come back from university saying, I'm getting married or I'm changing my life one way or the other. But this was fairly drastic when you're saying I'm moving in. Yeah, I disappointed a lot of people. I actually made the call. I made the decision at the end of the 10 days and I called from the payphone. They didn't have cell phones back then. And I called my professors and they were just super pissed off. But then I called my parents and they were going through a very difficult time. They're going through a divorce and they're out in California. So they couldn't understand. And, you know, I, one of the teachings in my book is whenever you follow your heart, you will disappoint other people unintentionally, but you'll disappoint other people. If you're not regularly disappointing other people, who might you be regularly disappointing? So many of us are living for other people. Like we're not, we don't even know what we want. We're living because it's the family business or we're living because we can make a lot of money at it, but it's not really what we like. Very quickly, you become sort of the two I see of this ashram. You're the, some people call it the golden boy. You can't do any wrong. It moves to this Jesuit monastery, this beautiful place in the Berkshire, and you're instrumental in that move. How did you sort of step into this world and be such a facilitator for what the guru wanted? Mm -hmm. You were almost that, you know, the Merlin to the throne. Well, I think there's something called destiny. And I think we're all living destiny. You know, fate is what's given to us, but destiny is what you do with that. One of my mentors there said, uh, if you've been loved, you're a teacher. And there's something about receiving the teachings and seeing the benefit in my own life that then I wanted to pass that on to others because 
you know, serving other people, serving the highest light in others is so satisfying. There's nothing, there's no high greater than that. And that became really the force of my life to actually bring more light because yoga as a yoga teacher, as you support other people to like open their hearts, um, make better choices in their life, you can't help but shift your own life to make that happen. I mean, if you're authentic, you know. And the person you're serving is, I want to make sure I have his name right, Amrit Desai? Yeah. It wasn't easy for me to start yoga and to take it to the level where it went because what I taught was so understandable, acceptable, and practical. But I brought the ancient teachings in the language that they could understand and practice. Amrit, and again, I, I'm trying to imagine this through your lives, but you know, he believed in celibacy. Uh, he wanted to separate men and women, living quarters, where they ate, even how they traveled in separate cars. And as I'm reading that, I'm going, is this just another demonstration of great intentions suddenly become power corrupts? I don't mean that in any way of challenging beliefs, but as I study society over and over again, I think so many people get into roles where they really have the most beautiful intentions, but as they start capturing power and attention, they misuse it? Or do you think that those teachings were very much part of what was necessary for the students to really advance the way that you wanted to? You have to understand some of the yogic traditions. Um, They come from lineages. They come from you know, older practices. And there's a tradition that um, is really about living like a monk. It's called the renunciate path, which is a complete rejection of the world. So we move into an ashram, we move into a monastery, we make these vows of simplicity, chastity, and poverty in order to transcend the world because the world is just suffering. Now, there's a lot of spiritual beliefs and even traditions that are dualistic in that way. There's sort of like the body and then there's the spirit and the spirit is superior and the body is what's in the way. So that's not the tradition that I evolved into. But during that time, Akrapala, they had a a very sort of austere uh, tradition. And one of those was uh, celibacy. Um, In terms of the power idea... Yeah, I think, you know, both the two teachers that, which ended in betrayal had, I think, very powerful, positive intentions and they did good work in the world. And then, yeah, I think there's a point where uh, no matter how much power is there, the person who's wielding that power has to be able to contain it. And you have to be able to contain it and maintain a perspective, including the embrace of the full spectrum of themselves, which is shadow and light. And I think a lot of these yogic teachings, they shun the shadow. They, they push the shadow down because they don't want anyone to see their weaknesses. They don't want to see their weaknesses and they go for the light and they're, um, appreciated for the light and they just keep going in that direction. So again, it's, it's kind of a transcendent path. That's a path of perfection, you know, which is like all those imperfect things in myself. I'm going to like hide all those things. I love what uh, Deepak Chopra says. He said, uh, if you think you don't have a shadow, you must not be standing in the light. Yeah, I thought that was very powerful. This ashram, I mean, you're living austerity, you're rejecting a lot of society, but at the same time, this place is like a, a giant Marriott. I mean, you've had 300 residents, 12,500 guests annually, uh, 40 affiliate groups nationwide. I mean, it becomes a massive brand and all the complexities and an appetite for more, more, more. And I was wondering how that could coexist with the people that are living there that are supposed to say, you know, I'm going to be celibate. I'm not going to have wealth. I'm going to shun society. But at the same time, it's because of big business. It's a delicate balance. I mean, I'm working that out nowhere near that scale, just in my own life, because there's the practice of yoga and there's the business of yoga. And um, how to marry those two and how to, you know, teach with a high level of ethics, you know, high standards, but to also um, continuously look at the shadow, embrace the shadow. You know, I mean, I really subscribe to a, a life 
that embraces non-perfectionism. I'm a recovering perfectionist. So like a world that is not about striving to be the perfect thing, just is a little more relaxed. And there's a teaching in Tantra, which is everything in life is for your awakening. And from that mentality, everything in life has a certain kind of meaning that we give to it. And that we are perfectly imperfect just as we are, which is this embrace of ourselves, you know, with acceptance. So I think as power and fame and all that grows, you have to be able to manage it and maintain a connection to the essence of that deepest desire of the heart. Like, why are you really doing this? And, you know, we could say, I don't know what happens in other people's minds, but I, they definitely forget that, <laughs> you know, as they increase their wealth, if they're not careful, they start subduing other people and harming others, you know, put others down so they can rise higher. It's Tony Chapman. My guest today is Todd Noran, whose journey has led him to spend over a decade living like a monk, following the teachings of Amrit Desai. Then close your eyes, open to your breath, and follow the natural flow of the inhalation and exhalation. Notice the interplay of effort and grace. Todd, your heart's broken when you learn that this leader, this guru, who demands celibacy for single men and women, is accused of having multiple extramarital affairs. And that had to be one of the hardest things because you gave everything to this ashram and you gave like, as you said, more than anything else, it wasn't what you were intellectually worth or even financially worth. You gave your heart. Yeah. Yeah. It was a hundred percent bought in. It was really a lifestyle practice for me. You know, I wasn't the only one. There's so many of us that, that gave everything. I had friends who didn't really practice celibacy that well. And when they were caught, they got kicked out. Meanwhile, the guru was having the time of his life or whatever he was doing, you know. What was most difficult about all that is the lying, which, you know, in any kind of situation, whether it's in a relationship or the clergy or at work, you know, we hear about it all the time, you know, sexual harassment and all that. But it's the denial of it, the lying about it and the covering up that happened for really all those years. And then when it, when rumors started to come out, he publicly addressed the whole community with the big lie. And it was uh, about a year after that, more women actually came up in public and said, no, this was really happened. This happened to me too. So he couldn't get out of it. It was mayhem there for, for some time. 1997, you find yourself repeating the pattern this time, spending time with tantric scholars, Douglas Brooks, Bill Mahoney, Sally Campton, and practicing a different kind of yoga. Mm-hmm. You found a way, I guess, to forgive and move on or where you're just sort of on empty because you weren't part of a community. You needed, you needed to find a way to be with like-minded people because I'm, you know, there's an expression once bitten, try, twice shy because the learnings you get really define what you're doing today and we're going to get to it. I mean, powerful learnings. What led you to say, I'm ready for the next part of my journey? I just was lost for quite a while. I'd say, you know, three to six months or so. And then my body just craved yoga. And I went back to the yoga because for me, the yoga was always true. Like, like it works, you know, and it's not personality driven. So I started my practice up again. I started teaching again. Um, and I started to actually reflect, go through all the layers of, you know, betrayal is like you got to get through all the layers of emotion before you can even get close to forgiveness. And, you know, I did forgive, but it's like for how to forgive with a strong boundary. And once I did that, that deep inner work, I was ready to move on. And it just, it was just circumstance, you know, this amazing teacher, someone told me about this teacher and I uh, was uh, teaching for Yoga Journal and the conferences. I went out to teach there in Estes Park, Colorado. And I took a class with this teacher and he made me laugh. You know, it was John Friend in Anusara Yoga. Many people probably know him. And uh, we just hit it off. He was like a friend. He was a buddy. I remember I gave him one of my music CDs 
Um, because what he was saying was, was basically, you know, life is not a dirge. It's a dance. And he brought playfulness back. And you know what? That's exactly what I needed. I needed to let go a little bit and cut loose and find a deeper freedom in myself. I didn't know that what he was teaching was part of this uh, tantric tradition for householders, which was completely opposite of the renunciate tradition. So instead of the rejection of the world, the tantra this particular branch of Tantra sees the world as the expression of spirit itself, which is that whole idea of, you know, taking the ordinary and seeing with extraordinary eyes that this world is actually the playground through which the, you know, vastness of the universe expresses itself. And how important was music? Because it sounds like this is the perfect stage for your heart to really get back into music. Mm. Did that happen or was music just always part of it? Or did you find with, with John Fran that it was, it gave you permission to start writing and creating and some of the magical stuff that you put together? He certainly enhanced my desire to do that, but I had been doing it for a long time. I had bands at Kripalu. In fact, I, I had a band called the Shakti Fusion Band, which was uh, jazz, rock, fusion, chanting music. And uh, we did these big conferences and concerts there in the main hall at Kripalu. We we became kind of like the the uh, Kripalu's house band. We played all the large functions. It was really fabulous. Wrote uh, many of my own songs. I did all the arranging. So I was able to express this kind of jazz rock idiom with spiritual <laughs> spirituality of chanting, uh, wild dancing and drumming and all that. We had two two drum sets in our band. So that has had always been happening. And then I just continued to record a lot of my music. You know, I couldn't play the jazz so, so well anymore because I just wasn't practicing, but I was able to hear it and create, go into the studio and I could create these uh, environments of peaceful, relaxing sounds and all my music, because I'm a jazz composition person, they have like this deep evolving structure underneath it kind of holds the music all together and the other sort of force of nature going through you is that you you get married and you marry Anne green and where'd you meet her as the residents started to get older they gave us uh our own housing we started we lived from just like a nine by nine room with a hall bath we moved to another property that had little apartments so we were sort of like growing up graduating and then they offered a program for people who wanted to explore marriage as a conscious path. So I joined that program because I, they were grooming me to become a monk. I was just almost there, you know, to take the vows, shave your head, you know, you wear the color okra, a life of austerity in service to the guru. And just before I did that, I decided to sign up for this program. And they would take residents through um, a variety of stages of exploration and relationship with yourself, then with others, with opposite sex. Um, meanwhile, <laughs> there was no program for the gay community there at Kripalu. So, yeah, I met her in that program. She was a little younger than me. I'd been there for eight years. She'd been there for four, only four years. I knew the um, there was a, a married couple that uh, created this program. And I was friends with the guy and uh, we were actually workout buddies. We started to do triathlons. I was really into the yoga of endurance. And um, so he and I would be doing these long triathlon practice sessions, you know, workouts. And I just finally asked him, I said, how in the heck am I supposed to fall in love at this celibate ashram? And he was, the, he was the organizer. He was the head of the relationships program. <laughs> he said, you just need to lose control. I said, what are you saying? Are you giving me permission that I can just pick someone and fall in love? He said, well, you know, just don't tell me about it. He was a very cool guy. But I took that to mean that I was kind of on my own. I had my eyes on this one person. And so I just called her into my office and she thought we were doing some project together. And I said, oh, and I have a personal piece of business to talk to you about. She said, oh, what's that? And I said, I'm exploring relationship and want to know if you want to explore it with me. Her first question was, are you doing it with anyone else? <laughs> I said, 
no. And then she said, well, what does this mean? And I said, well, we're just going to have to make it up. And she said later, that was the line that really hooked her. So she said, yes, we kept it under wraps for quite a while because if anyone found out that we were exploring a relationship, we'd both have to leave. So uh, we did get found out after a while. We were given an ultimatum. We could get married outside the ashram or we could take time apart in the ashram to really get clear if that's what we really wanted. So we took six weeks apart. We couldn't even make eye contact. After that period of time, we decided we wanted to um, get married. So let's bring it back to John Friend, who you have opened your heart to again. And once again, a promise made is a promise kept. It's the second time that you're hit with this sledgehammer that drives right into your heart when everything you believed he stood for was, if anything, on shaking sand. Maybe I'm just a slow learner. <laughs> But uh, I I learned a lot too, like how to admire people without giving my power over to them. Um, I call it shadow hugging. It's when you put someone else up on a pedestal who embody all the positive qualities that you need to recognize in yourself. But due to just sort of my feeling of lack or my feeling of shame or unworthiness, I project that onto other people. I used to. So that was a big part of sort of my role in that. But, you know, I was really in love with the path and the philosophy, the teachings, and with John. I mean, he, he was a, an, an incredible teacher, like a gifted, incredible teacher, just like Amrit Desai was gifted and incredible. I still hold that as true, but it's getting clear, you know, like, what are you doing with, with the shadow piece? You know, it was a yoga that was based mostly in the heart and the spirit and the body. And then there was not much processing around shame or unworthiness or the mind. I think that really contributed to the lack of being able to hold the power and make better decisions that could have maybe extended the, the community, given it longevity. It was difficult. And then when it gets to the place where you're teaching one thing, but living a different lifestyle. So there's a duplicity there. It's really hard to reconcile all that, you know, and we kind of held John to it. We, I was on the ethics committee, you know, and we met with him and said, you need to step down, do some personal work, get therapy, and then come back. And he absolutely refused. He turned against his closest circle and that's when I knew, okay, something's really off here. You know, like I'm not, we aren't able to influence him. We're not able to actually have a voice to affect him. He's not being a team player. What I learned is the only power we have in situations like that is to walk away. We return. I wrap up my chat with Todd Norian. I offer you my three takeaways and then my message as we head into the new year. Tony Chapman from Chatter That Matters. I asked Canadians about their money matters. We talked debt, inflation, interest rates, and many were worried and some felt they could lose everything. In response, RBC has created My Money Matters. It's a site where you gain financial knowledge. You learn how to manage debt, reduce stress. There's even tools and apps to help you deal with the realities of today. Visit rbc.com slash money matters. Your financial well-being matters to you and to RBC. And lately I've been teaching about the yoga for happiness. Like everybody wants to be happy, but how do you do that? And all the tantric teachings come into that, you know, namely to understand that life is always happening for you, never to you. And then we want to shift from living in victim consciousness, which is life keeps happening to me. Oh, this thing keeps happening to me again and again and again to life is happening for me. Life has your back. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My guest today is Todd Norin, and what I like is that his journey has been both spiritual and also dealing with the harshness of the human race and are often grabbed for power. Again, I found another turning point in your life. 2012, you decide to make your destiny a matter of choice, not chance. You decide that I am going to be the creator. I am going to set the value set of the Shaya Yoga. 
give the audience a sense of what you're part of and what you hope to achieve with sort of this body of work and this teaching that comes from sort of the tantra and comes from the past, but you're also interpreting it with the present and sort of with musical notes and everything else that's going on with with Todd. So just give us a sense of what it's all about. The bottom line is I want myself and I believe everyone is wanting this as well, is to come to a deep recognition of who we are. That we're here on this planet to rediscover, to remember, to have a revelation of why we're here, of what is this? What, what is this body? What is this mind? You know, who am I is the essence of the question. And the Tantra gives a lot of answers to that, which is you are the universe. You are, you are all that is. And it's a recognition of this intrinsic freedom that we have inside, but we've forgotten it. So I'd say the thrust of my teaching, which comes from this long tradition of, of, of Tantra. And Tantra, by the way, means a loom, like a weaver's loom, where we weave back together the dispersed parts of ourself into an integrated, meaningful matrix of relationship. And it is about learning how to live through the eyes of grace in our highest, like the highest part of the self, which, you know, we lost, we've lost, you know, as soon as we're born, we get what I call cosmic amnesia. We forget where we come from. You know, the Buddha forgot where he came from until he remembered. And then he remembered all of his past lives. And when that happened, he got enlightened, you know, and I feel like we're all on this path which I'm calling the path of the heart because the deepest knowing and the deepest joy always emanates from the heart. So how to open the heart, how to follow the heart, and then how to bring more light into the world, bring more peace. I mean, we we could use a transformation on the planet right now. In your book, Tantra Yoga, Journey to Unbreakable Wholeness, a Memoir. And what I was fascinated about because in my work I get to read a lot of memoirs because I talk to individuals overcoming their circumstances yours was one of the most interesting books I've read because it's sort of as you almost said like the way Tantra is this this weaving it's kind of a weaving of your life with the learnings of Tantra I wanted to bring the experience that I have every time I teach in workshops either online or live in person where I see transformation happen in the students. Their hearts crack open. I'll be telling a story about my own life and they burst into tears. And when I ask them, you know, what are your tears telling you? They say, oh my God, when you said that, I remembered this experience and how I've been uh, stuffing this down and I can no longer do that. I need to free myself of what this this piece of, you know, life experience that I've not accepted, that I've not embraced. And I've been giving it such a negative meaning, you know, giving it a meaning that it means that there's something wrong with me, which is the essence of shame. So I wrote the book because I wanted to get a written version of what I see happening in my workshops. So I've pulled all the different life experiences. You know, I teach, you know, from the fabric of my own life, basically, because it's authentic. But I'm also teaching my perspective and the meaning that I assign. Like those two betrayals that I had, there's a big part of the book that's addressing betrayal as instead of an impasse, as a rite of passage. Because who hasn't been betrayed? Betrayal is one of the orbits that we have to step into if we're going to follow the heart. We have to go through the purification of having someone lie to us and different levels. Like if your spouse says, I'll be home at six and then get back at seven. Okay. That's like tolerable, you know, all the way to, you know, sex and the clergy and uh, deeper lies that have greater impact. So I try to teach that we are meaning making machines. That's what human beings do. I ask people to examine what is the meaning you're assigning to your life and is it empowering you? Because we have agency. We have the power of self-reflection. 
And we can't change other people. We can't even change our lives, but we can change our mind. And our capacity to change our mind means that your destiny is in your hands. As you continue to gain followers and become more and more meaningful to people, what prevents you from becoming the next leader that decides that they're going to push their shadow away and just bask in the light of fame and success and power and materialistic goods? Well, I walk in the footsteps of my students, let's say that much. And I have a very sharp, clear memory of what it feels like to be lied to. And I made a commitment to myself never to do that. A big part of my teachings, I mean, if you come to any of my workshops, you will hear, I wouldn't call it self-deprecation, but I would say I'm the first to take myself off the pedestal right away so that I start relating to my students as as people, students, and also as, as my teacher. Like they're teaching me as much as I'm teaching them. It's really how to hold strength and vulnerability together. And as a teacher, to be vulnerable and to share the shadow and the light, not just the light, but the shadow and the light. Because I've seen that there's just as much to learn from our blind spots and our shadows there there is from the light. And Tony, the other thing I want to say is I do my practice. I love being a teacher, but my primary joy in life is practice every day, twice a day. And that becomes a a thrust, you know? Have you found peace? Because when I listen to you, Todd, the kid that used to practice 12 hours a day that had to be the, you know, even when you're talking about in the ashram, which is supposed to be this you know, living a life of a monk, you've got a band, you're running marathons, you're training to be a triathlete. You've seemed to be somebody that's trying to get 26 hours out of every 24 hour day, if not 46 hours. Have you found a way now that where you are today that less is more? Or are you just possessed to try to, especially as we age, to get to to go even faster? I, I think it's all a balance. I'd say, you know, in my wisdom, I'm living more in the place in the middle. But I, I subscribe to live fully, love fully, laugh fully. You know, it's carpe diem. It's, it's, there's a tantric principle called purna. Uh, purnatva means the principle of fullness, which is, you know, to put yourself fully into everything that you do, not to hold back. So, yeah. And, you know, my meditation, my yoga, brings me deeper and deeper levels of peace. I do personal retreats a couple times a year. We can talk about what does enlightenment look like, and it's not like the storybooks. You know, I see it as to be, you know, wholly in the state of our state. I always end with my three takeaways, but I just wanted to first of all say, I wasn't sure how this was going to go. Watched a lot of your videos. I, I read your book, and I wasn't sure whether I could relate or not. And I realize now that you have followed your heart. It beats with such intent. Some of the takeaways I'm going to walk away from, there's so many more, but I always try to focus on three. One of the most magical things I've ever heard, fate is given, destiny is what you do with it. And I think that is such a powerful lesson in life for people because very often we send, tend to be like a leaf just blowing in the wind and letting it go where it goes. It, it's a powerful message to anybody, no matter what circumstances you're in. There's still choice. The second one is, what does your heart most deeply desire? How much do you value it? And what are you prepared to do? Which are so powerful because we never ask ourselves. And it feeds into my third takeaway is you have to disappoint others to follow your heart because if you're, it's what other people's heart desires, you're not living your life. And there's so many people that go down a path for validation or for security or, as you said, taking on the family business. And I think you're one of the most living proof because you turned your back on music and everything you talk about music, it roars through your blood. Not that you turned your back on it, but you also opened your heart to this incredible life. And I think you're going to offer my listeners so much. And and what's the best way for them to get more of what you have to offer? 
Yeah, I just go to my website, which is ashayayoga.com. I just think you're a beautiful human being. I just think you're just a life-changing guest for me. So I want to thank you for that. Thank you, Tony. Thanks for being so open and receptive. And, you know, the interviews are always different and it really matters who the interviewer is. So someone who is so curious like yourself, you know, and so open-hearted made it very easy for me to just go inside and share. Extend gratitude, well-being, and joy to yourself and all beings with the sound of Om. As we bid farewell to another year and welcome the promise of a new one, it's hard not to reflect on the passage of time and our journey. It feels like just yesterday we're eagerly counting down the clock filled with hope and anticipation as we ushered in a new millennium. We believe this era would bring unparalleled progress, prosperity, and unity. Yet as we look back on the first 25 years, we cannot deny that it has been a tumultuous period for humanity. Amidst the technological achievements and scientific breakthroughs, we face so many challenges that have stained our consciousness. The devastating acts of terror that shook the world from September 11, 2001 to numerous attacks since, and as recent as October 7th, shows that there are no limits to crimes against humanity. The many wars, the rise of extremist ideologies, and the loss of countless lives, the East versus the West, the undeniable impact of climate change has intensified with rising temperatures, natural disasters, and the urgent need for a collective action to protect our planet. The haves and the have-nots, the growing gap between the rich and the poor has widened, leaving too many marginalized and struggling for their basic needs. Social divisions and hates, our societies have become more polarized with deep divisions along political, cultural, and social lines. Hate and discrimination continue to plague us, and seats at the table continue to be denied, not by merit, but by gender or ethnicity. And AI, in such a short period of time, it's vacuumed up thousands of jobs, and in very short order, millions more. So what's caused all this? Sadly, there are no isolated incidents, but interconnected symptoms of a more profound crisis. This complex web of factors, including greed, power struggles, geopolitical tensions, systemic injustices, and a lack of global and human cooperation. Are we at our worst, or are these signs of more things to come? Well, the answer lies in our hands. We have the power to shape our future. It is up to us to rise above the hate, violence, and the excessive spending on weaponry. As a planet, we must unite. We must partner with Mother Nature. We must work to eradicate poverty and ensure a purposeful existence for the human race. It's time we bring down the drawbridges and leave our castles where we feel safety in numbers. Of being with like-minded people who like like like-minded content, who look alike, who ignore or even hate the people who aren't like them. Let's ride together to the middle ground where consensus and collaboration can lead us to peace and prosperity. So when the clock strikes midnight, raise a toast to the new year. Raise a toast to building bridges, healing wounds, and forging a path towards a world where love and understanding prevail. May 2024 be a year of unity, peace, and progress. Chatter That Matters has been a presentation of RBC. Happy New Year to all. It's Tony Chapman. Thanks for listening. And let's chat soon. Thank you.